Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and... Today's guest is a, a different one. Different how? Well, most people, when they have their second act, they kind of look back on their first act with a negative lens or, you know, they weren't quite happy. But uh, Charles Scott looks back on his first act with, like, remorse isn't the right word. No, I think he looks back on it very fondly. He just realized there was more to life than what being uh, a C-suite level uh, executive at a place like Intel um, was able to give him. He he knew there was more out there for him. Well, and he and he knew that, and he so he took on his second act. But you listen in the pod, and he doesn't regret working at Intel. A lot of times with these podcasts, the second act will open people's eyes and make them regret the first act of their life. And why hadn't they been doing this the whole time? And it isn't the case with Charles. Charles has enjoyed enjoyed working at Intel and now he enjoys what he what he's doing now. Yeah, and the the executive mentorship that he does now is only part of his second act. I think the most incredible thing is all the work he did um to leave his legacy for his children. You know, his children are are 22 and 16 now so they're growing up, but I mean all the effort he put into taking his kids all around the world essentially. Uh they they traversed Iceland, Japan, all over the United States together uh, and then wrote books about it and, and left that book for each kid um, so that, that his legacy was going to live on. I think that's the incredible part. And as you'll hear him say, he never gets to do all that if it wasn't for the work that he put into the first act. So I think that's the incredible part for me is, is he, how he's able to kind of pay the respect to both parts of his, um, his career. Oh, that's just it. He, uh, he talks about how he would go on month long bike trips with his eight-year-old son, just like to enjoy it, and it's it's a really interesting story that's very heartwarming. It's it's family-driven. It's about what he wanted to do, but uh, we can only talk so much about it. So, without further ado, Charles Scott. Thank you, Gord. It's an honor to be here. Well, we're we're really happy you were able to find some time all the way from Berlin, Germany, to sit down with us and and go through uh, go through you know your story about you know like I like I mentioned you. You had an opportunity to uh, work your way up corporately, and and you decided you were going to do something completely different. And I think that's uh, you know an interesting journey that there's a lot of people who probably think both sides of that coin are what they're striving for, and uh, and we're fortunate to have an opportunity to sit down with somebody who's who's seen both sides of that coin. Yeah, thank you. And just for the record, so I live in New York City. I'm just happened to be in Berlin this week, um, which I, I love to travel around the world. But I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, born and raised. Um, so I, I kind of view myself as a Nashvilleian transplanted into a big urban environment. And that affects some of the decisions I make, uh, which includes getting out of the city and into nature with my kids. And that's part of some of the story that I'll tell you about. Well, those those are um, very, uh, you know, all of those places are destinations at this point, you know, Nashville's become, I mean, the, the bachelor party, bachelorette party capital of, of the USA, I'm sure, you know, and 
and the music city is so thriving and bustling that, that there's probably a lot of people that think Nashville would be uh, a perfectly fine hub. And then New York City, I mean, come on, the city that never sleeps. If if you could just uh, manage to do something about all those dirty Yankee fans, you, you'd have just about the perfect place to live, right? I'm not going to offend the Yankee fans, but I will say when I grew up in Nashville, it was definitely not the bachelorette, you know, capital of the world, um, but it was a lovely place to grow up. What it gave me was a foundational identity um, that I brought, you know, to into adulthood um, that I thought was really quite meaningful. And, and in particular, it was a sense of community and um, being of service to others. And that theme kind of played out in some of my own later decisions uh, in life. So if if Nashville wasn't that the thriving metropolis that it is now, um, what what led you uh, to to want to go into a career in corporate where you know that that makes sense in my head for somebody from New York City that ends up in a C-suite for for a big company like Intel, um, but but for a kid from Nashville, you know, was that just happenstance and, and a series of uh, fortunate events, or how did you end up on that trajectory? Yeah, my father is a professor. He's still alive. He's eighty-seven, and uh, so I grew up in kind of a professor's household. My mother, by the way, is a priest. So I grew up with a, a professor and a priest as, as parents. And so our coffee or our dinner table uh, conversations were often fairly substantive around how do you craft a meaningful life in an intentional way, would be one way to summarize it. And we also um, spent some time overseas. My dad had a sabbatical in, in Germany, in Switzerland. So when I was five years old, I spent a year over there. Uh, and we had exchange students. And so even though I was growing up in a pretty parochial environment, I got exposed to the wider world beyond Nashville. And I was intrigued and wanted to be more of a citizen of the world and explore it. So after college, I lived in a Buddhist seminary in Tokyo for two years just to have a radical new experience, to learn a new language, to study you know, an interesting religion and all that stuff. And then I went to graduate school in international relations up in Boston. Uh, and so I was interested in traveling the world and learning about new cultures and Intel Corporation offered that possibility. So my first job at Intel was international business development. So that was my, my interest was I want to travel the world. I want to learn new languages, new cultures and find some way to interact in a meaningful way. And in, in that iteration of my life, it was around business and Intel offered that. So the, in, in that kind of vein, um you know there's there's going to be a culture within every corporate entity that is similar to a, the differences between the us or japan or germany or switzerland so when you got into intel was it kind of like a little mini journey within a journey in that corporate structure to understand kind of what what the you know what was accepted what wasn't how you were going to fit in culturally to a place like intel it's a really interesting question because i, I make a joke for the Star Trek nerds out there, and I'm totally a Star Trek nerd, when you join Intel Corporation, it's like being assimilated by the Borg. There's a Star Trek episode where, where Captain Picard is assimilated by the Borg, and their one-liner is, resistance is futile. You cannot resist being assimilated by the Borg. It's just this like universal, it's like a hive mind. And Intel is like that. <laughs> Intel has these core values that if you're going to work there, you're going to adhere by them. And there, there are things like constructive confrontation, which was really difficult for me, a boy from the South raised to be polite and more passive aggressive than, than aggressive. Um, and also uh, informed risk-taking, 
those two particular values were so powerful and useful to me because I learned how to actually have constructive confrontation and, and also how to take informed risks. And so joining Intel was like joining a new culture and assimilating and making mistakes along the way, but then adjusting over time. I sometimes go back to Intel and give talks. And when I give talks there, I start off with this sentence, like you guys are lucky to be working for a place that is um, teaching you and expecting of you adherence to core values that will serve you the rest of your life. So that was absolutely a, a part of Intel. I really liked the experience there. I just, after 14 years, I did decide to leave, but it gave me a foundation that has been very useful to this day. And you, you must have had uh, a reasonable amount of success at your time at Intel. You, you know, you must have built on those those core values and developed a, a, a number of skills that have served you well. What what was that culture like at Intel? Did you find it difficult to, you know, the I guess the the kind of the you know default position on corporate culture is it's based off of greed and you know power and and it doesn't sound like you necessarily had that experience at a place like Intel. What what was that like? And, and then ultimately what led you to decide you, you needed to make a change? Yeah. So the the culture I'll give you an example. The first week that I joined Intel, I gave a presentation to the team. So it was just an internal presentation to the business unit I had joined. And I had 10 slides. And I presented slide one, I moved to slide two, and a guy watching said, Helen, can you go back to slide one? And I said, no, just, just wait, I'll present all 10 slides and then I'll take questions at the end. <laughs> and, and the guy said, you're new to Intel, aren't you? And I said, yes, yeah, my first week. He's like, yeah, it shows, go back to slide one. Engineers, don't proceed to step two if step one doesn't make sense. And I'm not sure your step one makes sense. Go back. And I realized, oh, so it's an engineering mindset at Intel. So it's not a greed mindset. It's an engineering mindset of you start with a premise and then you move to the next step and then to the next one. And that way of thinking is rigorous and challenging. And, and I thought it was really interesting. Of course, it's a corporation. So, you you know, there's a fiduciary duty to your shareholders. So yeah. it in a capitalist environment, you do need to pay attention to profitability. And so, of course, that's the context that you're operating in. Um, so so that that permeated everything by definition. But what I experienced there was a place that was constantly pushing because in in Silicon Valley, if you don't cannibalize your own product line, your competitor will. If you don't innovate, you'll fall behind in the marketplace. So it's it's a constant treadmill pressure to innovate and to, 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 to take risks, but I call it, in, they, the, what we were taught was informed risk-taking. So you need, the problem with that is there's a trap on the informed side. You can get stuck in, in analysis paralysis and wait too long and your competitor gets first mover advantage. But if you move too quickly and you focus on the risk-taking side, you could burn a billion dollars on a product the marketplace isn't ready for. This is almost more art than science. So but my experience at Intel was a lot of really smart people working very hard, trying to have a big impact in a capitalist environment, a capitalist context, of course, um, but but you grow in, in that. So I, I really value the experience and found it useful, even though in the end I decided to leave it. And the reason I decided to leave it is I turned 40 years old and I wrote out a list of life goals. And number one on that list was dream up adventures with my kids. I, I had two kids and I was just doing the classic corporate thing and I'm just, you know, there was a part of me that felt like this just isn't really me exactly. I liked it. I was successful there. I found it interesting, but I needed to leave it for some reason for me to develop differently. And so I, what I did is I took a, 
a, a two-month unpaid leave of absence, and I cycled the length of Japan with my uh, eight-year-old son. And that was quite the thing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that was uh, the catalyst for, for a lot of your adventures. But it just going back to that last little bit, and it, it kind of lends me to believe that that was the introduction that you, you had to a concept that I see a lot when I read about you in the, in the articles you provided uh, around meaningful discomfort. It sounds like Intel, whether you knew that's what it was at that moment or not, it, it really fostered that with people. They, they kind of wanted you to, to not quite be terribly comfortable, but it needed to be a means to an end. And, and once you were able to kind of give that a, a name, meaningful discomfort, you could look around your life and say, well, look at all these other places, meaningful discomfort can can lead to growth and and the the things that i'm really looking for this list that you're talking about when you turn 40. um was the was was once you kind of wrap your arms in your head around meaningful discomfort was that kind of the key that unlocked the door for for the rest of this little journey that you've been on ever since i think that's a good entry point um the line i like to use is that meaningful discomfort is the birthplace of resilience and if you live your life proactively seeking out meaningful discomfort a lot of good things occur. It'll reveal perceived limits that you have about yourself, for example, that aren't real. Right? We all have perceived limits, but they're often different from our actual limits. And so that space between your perceived and actual limits is really interesting. And meaningful discomfort is a way to get there, but the, the meaningful really matters. Random discomfort, it can just be negative, like not really useful to you. So meaningful is important. So you proactively seek out opportunities to grow and growth is just going to involve some discomfort. And one of the gifts I wanted to give my children on the, on all the bike trips I took with them was basically to become native speakers of meaningful discomfort. The more comfortable you are with the fact that you're going to have to struggle sometimes, the, the less of a big deal it is. So if you work at Intel, my, my main mentor there, whenever he would um, promote someone, or put them in a position, he would say, congratulations, you're now director of engineering, you're behind. That's what he always, every time you, on day one, you're behind, that was his message to you. So you're just gonna be uncomfortable. Or I had a boss who said, here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna give you a bucket and you're gonna fill it up. And you're gonna return to me and that bucket's gonna be full. And I'll say, nice job, and I'm gonna give you two buckets. And then you're gonna fill up those two buckets and you're gonna return it and I'll say, nice job, here are four buckets. It never ends, welcome to Intel. <laughs> right? I, was, I mean, and this is a bit of an exaggeration, but but fundamentally, that was it. So you're kind of pushing the edge in a meaningful way. And that's really because we're all creatures of growth and transformation. And what I've tried to do is to come up with terminology and a way of living that helps people to grow and transform in a meaningful way. And that that is deeply satisfying for for human beings, I think. So I, I would agree. I think that's a, a very noble pursuit. Um, but you you started off doing that with you know the people most dear to you your children, and you you took like you said an eight year old on a bike trip uh, around or on the over the length of Japan and and I mean we can talk about some of the other excursions that you've taken your children on. Um, there there had to have been a certain comfort level you had with that discomfort in order to include your children in, in some pretty heady. Uh, lofty goals. What what went into those decisions? That conversation, that first conversation with your wife, you said, you know, I have an idea, and you're going to float this idea at her. Um, you know, what what the constitution, the makeup that you had in your brain about this idea that you had, what went into that? 
Yeah. And actually, let me just go back. I'll give you a little preface to it. When I was growing up, my father got into the running boom in the 70s. And I wanted to impress him and be like him. So at age 10, I became a runner. I got a watch and I started running. And by age 13, I, I just want to impress my dad. And so I, and also just proved to myself that I was a real runner. So at age 13, I tried to run a marathon and asked my parents permission. And so I ran a marathon. My, my dad said, we agree and I'll do it with you. So my dad and I ran our first marathon together when I was 13 years old. I, he ditched me halfway. I came in last place. It was very, they're talking about discomfort. It was very uncomfortable, but I didn't quit. And at the end of that race, he's like, I'm, I'm proud of you, son. You, know, you set an ambitious goal. And when it proved to be too much, what'd you do? You, you did it anyway. And then he said, that's called persistence. That's resilience. You'll draw on this the rest of your life. So from a young age, I associated running and endurance athletics uh, as something meaningful and discovering my body's actual limits versus my perceived limits as somehow useful. And I brought that into adulthood. So I've always been an athlete and kind of a weekend warrior and doing lots of endurance challenges like marathons or Ironman triathlons and that kind of stuff. So when I had children, I had a debate about how can I have a serious full-time job and raise children and still take care of my body and actually not just take care of my body, still set ambitious athletic goals. That became the tension. And I, I was doing marathons and Ironman triathlons, but it was taking a lot of time away from my family. And the epiphany I had was, what if I just bring my kids along? <laughs> so, so I shifted it to, and I found a trailer cycle. So don't, don't put like an eight-year-old on his own bicycle and ask him to cycle 2,500 miles, 4,000 kilometers. That's insane. But if you have a trailer cycle, it's totally doable. So I figured out a way to include my kids. And then my daughter was four. I put her in a bike trailer behind that. And then we kind of went from there. But there, what I was trying to do uh, for me, I found it meaningful to do set endurance challenges and then to share them with my kids. So your specific question about my wife, when I told her about my idea to cycle and link to Japan, I just I said, I've got this great idea. I think it's going to be great for our son. And I, I was basically pitching like like a, I'm pitching my boss and she, and she interrupted and said, listen, you, you can stop selling. I trust you, but you just have to swear to me that you will keep our son safe. And I said, okay, I've been working on a mitigation strategy list, like everything I can think of that could go wrong. I mean, I love my children. I'm not going to like randomly put them in danger because I'm a nutbag. So I'm like, I got to pull this off. And I said, All right, my number one item on my mitigation strategy, keep my son safe, of course. Number two item on that list, keep my son safe. Number three item on that list, keep my son safe. Top three, of course, of course, that has to happen. But then after that, let me figure out the rest of the stuff. So she tr basically trusted me. And then, you know, it's like, don't screw it up. <laughs> and, and I didn't. And then we went on and did a lot more. <laughs> so, yeah. And it says, I mean, like, she said, no, I wouldn't have done it. Of course, it veto. she has veto power. And when I was in Japan, I met a guy who's like, like, your wife's okay with this? You know, your wife's okay with this? I'm like, yeah. And, and he said, she just got tired of arguing with you. That's why, that's why she agreed. That's what he said. Like, I don't know. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Well, and I mean, obviously, this something like, like that this isn't a new driver or something like that 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 you got you know you're gonna go and do anyways if if there's a disagreement this is your your child your children you're gonna obviously and and oh, like you say the the safety is paramount for any of it but i i was you know there's there's also like a disruption in their life that a trade-off of you know a, a regular school life, their friends, the activities that they would do with their friends. And you guys are taking them to say, or you're taking them to say, we're going to go do this for a couple of weeks. Um, I was just curious, you know, what, what that's been like for them um, as they join you on, on all these, you know, journeys. 
Yeah. So these were summer vacation trips. So these were two month breaks, you know, during the school year. So there was no disruption except to just whatever they would have been doing in the summer. So instead of going to a summer camp, they cycled across, you know, in this case, my son cycled across Japan. And then, I mean, the things we did when my daughter was four, my son was 10, we cycled the circumference of Iceland over 46 days. Um, when my daughter was six, my son was 12, we retraced the Lewis and Clark trail by bicycle, but all of these, and, and we did Europe, we did a bunch of stuff. But so all of these trips were over the summer break. So it's, it's not disruptive to their school life. And, and also it was before they were 12. Birth through 12, the biggest gift a parent can give their child is all of your time, as long as you're loving and kind. If you're abusive, yeah. leave your child alone. But if you're a loving, kind human being, the biggest gift you can give your kids is your time. Once they become teenagers, the biggest gift you can give them is to leave them alone and let them play with their friends and give them just some healthy parameters. So these bike trips that I did were with my children before they became teenagers. Um, and then and then it shifted. Like my son really got into soccer and he's a very competitive, excellent soccer player. So the meanest thing I could have done is to force him to be on a bicycle for two months and where he's losing his, his soccer training over the summer. So that so he stopped. And I mean, so that this is birth through 12 is really the window of time to do something like this, in my opinion, with children where they'll get the most out of it. And for them, they just get to spend the summer with their dad. They yeah. loved, we became so close. It was great. Um, so no, it wasn't a problem in terms of disruption to their lifestyle. Really. And then they came back to school able to sit like my daughter at age six cycled over the Rocky Mountains over three mountain passes. You know, she comes back to second grade and like, you did what over the summer? <laughs> it's like crazy, man. And it's, it gives them the street cred. Well, yeah, well, that's the other part of it too, is at that point, it's, um, you know, like this cycling the circumference of Iceland. Um, and that's the type of thing that's cool when you get back. And then the year later and the next year and the next year, and then all throughout, it's, it's such an incredible trip. It's not just going to Disneyland, which, taken my kids it was a lot of fun we did it but everybody's been to disneyland and i'm guessing um your daughter is probably one of the few people that if she'll ever encounter that have uh, like the circumference of iceland okay so this is the key point and and this is so if somebody's listening to the podcast this is this is for you um the reason that i did these trips with my kids one is i love them and i want to share wonderful experiences with them and meaningful experiences Two, I wanted them to become native speakers of meaningful discomfort. What you learn on these trips is sometimes it's uncomfortable. And I said to my kids, sometimes an adventure just suffers for a while. It's just not that big a deal. So, so they can, and think about it, they can apply this then later to when you're trying to like, study calculus and it's hard, or you're going through a tough relationship breakup. Just life can be hard and it's just not that big a deal. Just face the problem. But the key takeaway for me um, here that I want to communicate is that the value of um, to, to yourself and to your kids when they do things that sound impossible or very difficult, and it turns out they're very possible. So this is the difference between your perceived and actual limits. My daughter is 16 years old right now. She's going through all the crap 16-year-olds, go girls go through, the sexualization, the objectification, the self-doubt. She cycled over the Rockies at age six. She cycled the circumference of Iceland at age four. Yes, she was in a bike trailer at age four. She was on a trailer cycle at age six. I did most of the work over the mountains, but it doesn't matter. Her perception of herself is that she's remarkably strong, remarkably adventurous, and remarkable, to your point. She's done things that many other children and teenagers have never done, and that makes her special, and she's loved. 
And if you internalize this, it inoculates you to a large degree from all the crap life throws at you. And that was the gift I was trying to give her. She's very confident and thinks she's stronger than she is. Good. Life's going to beat the crap out of her. I hope she approaches it with this great sense of confidence, like, okay, it's uncomfortable, but I'll figure it out. I think this is the gift we can give our children and ourselves. And that's the value of meaningful discomfort. Proactively seek it out and then develop the confidence to know it's going to be uncomfortable again and I'll figure it out. Wow, that's a, that's an incredible gift to pass along. That's, you know what I mean? That's um, something that it's, it's, the, uh, it's, it's a way to um, pass along perspective, like perspective, something that, you know, you have to earn for it to be really valuable. You can't give somebody your perspective. It's just your perspective. Um, but that's a way for you to help them gain some perspective on the situation without having to crash and burn, right? They can they can do that. They didn't fail. They went around and, and she always has it in her head that she went through those those passes that she did that work in, in Iceland. And when things start to get tough, like you say, when she's 16, and my, my kids are 15 and, and just about 13. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It, it gets, it compounds, right? Without the ability to deal with it, to have a little bit of, a gas left in the tank to, to sometimes power through some of those tough days, um, it can get really dicey really quickly. I agree. And I think something you said is really important. I just kind of want to reiterate. I think that the the biggest gift you can give your children, so we're talking about parenting, is to be a healthy role model. Your lectures um, don't really help. So just be a role model. And this is the, when I, when my son was born, I'm like, wow, it's not about me anymore. <laughs> and not only that, like I need to do better. I just, this child is going to be affected by the way I behave and not just towards them, but just how I am in this world. So I think the, I think the gift children give parents is it gives us real incentive to do better and just be healthier. So that's one thing. So be a role model, replace lectures with role modeling. And the second thing is experiential wisdom. What you were just describing, the kids can't learn this through your voice or, or through like reading a book or watching a movie, you, there's a whole category of wisdom that's only available to you on the far side of suffering and your own experience. And you can, you can get to it, but you have to have lived it. And so I think that's why the shared adventures where you do suffer in a meaningful way, that the children internalize the wisdom of the experience. And there's no way to get that except experientially. And so what does that mean to you? You don't have to, I mean, what I've done is really extreme. I don't think it's reasonable for most human beings to do what I've done and I don't even encourage it, <laughs> but, but, but I, what I encourage parents to do is just seek out meaningful experiences to share with their kids. And by the way, Disney world's lovely and go, that is a shared experience. So go do things just together and then celebrate the vitality that comes with it. The joy of being together let them see what gives you happiness and, and you celebrate what gives them happiness. That shared experience gives them self-confidence and worth. So it's, but, but I think in terms of experiential um, knowledge and wisdom, I think is a, a, a one way to think about parenting that I found to be quite meaningful. Yeah. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, people have to figure out for themselves, like their own way of doing that. Not everybody's going to be able to um, be the, the role model to 10 but if they can be a role model at two and then three and that gradual improvement is probably just as important as starting out on the high end right yeah i agree i think role, i mean the way think of role modeling just role model love at its simplest level just be a loving kind human being 
that's the most important thing we can do. Healthy relationships are the foundation is love and kindness, I think. So do that. And it, that doesn't require you to do anything dramatic at all. Um, I think just the way you show up each day and maybe in, recognize when, when you're not being that way and see if you can develop interrupts. This is part of the work I do with the people I mentor is we try to identify behavior patterns that don't serve you and the people you care about, people around you. And then you develop interrupts to, to break the pattern of the negative behavior pattern model itself and then replace it with behaviors that do serve you. And this is really hard work. But children, I think, give us a great incentive to do that hard work. That's a great segue into what I, I wanted to ask you about next. And, and because as fun as biking around Iceland and stuff sounds, it it doesn't probably pay what Intel uh, <laughs> Intel people uh, in the C-suite are, are, are used to making. So you have to do something, even though you walk away from Intel, um, you're you're carrying on into the next portion of your professional life. So is is that where you got right into executive mentorship or or what? What was that path for you on the on the professional side? Yeah, it emerged organically. So when I took the two month leave of absence from Intel and cycled the length of Japan with my son, I had opportunity to reflect. And I just realized for the second half of my adulthood, I wanted to shift my professional identity. The corporate world had been interesting. I had grown in some meaningful ways, but I needed to grow differently was, was the epiphany I had. It took me two years, by the way, after that trip, before I left Intel, I needed to save up money to make a plan. So I left and the first thing I did was cycle the circumference of Iceland. The week after I retired from Intel, I cycled the circumference of Iceland, with my kids. And then I wrote a book about the trip across Japan. Um, so I, the first year was doing an adventure and writing a book. And that book um, was my gift to my son. And I said, after I die, whenever you miss your dad, I'll be waiting for you right there in the pages of that book. And then I wrote a second book um, for about the Lewis and Clark ride. So my two children each got a book and that's my legacy. Um, and I remember when I finished the second book, I was like, oh, thank goodness I didn't die. I was worried that I might die before I finished these books because they are my legacy gifts to my kids. And I've sprinkled in there all these different ways of saying I love you for them to read after I'm gone. So notice the way I'm talking right now. This is classic midlife language. Um, it's the recognition of the brevity of life. I am going to die. I hope it's a long time from now, but I don't know. And in the phase of life that I've got left in these years, um, I want to live authentically and I want to live full of vitality. And so leaving the corporate world was my attempt to try to do that. And I didn't know how to do it. I just knew that it was really important. And I tried to, I trusted that nudge. So the first thing I did was I tried to make money as a writer and a speaker and that kind of worked, but it, it was not nearly the salary I had uh, when I worked at Intel. So it was, it was really not going to be sustainable long-term. Um, so I was kind of limping along financially. Um, but what would happen is I'd give a talk about some crazy, you know, bike adventure I do with my kids. And we did these charitable fundraisers. There's, you know, stuff to talk about. I got in the press. Um, and then sometimes people would come up to me after I talk and say, and ask me, are you a life coach? And I would say, I'm not a life coach. I'm a dad taking his kid on crazy adventures and writing about them. And they would say, well, it's just interesting. I wondered if you could help me with this thing. And I think you might be useful to me. People were projecting some value for them onto me because of the way I was living my life. And I had conversation after conversation where I started to see the pattern. And what was going on is I was living full of vitality. I was living authentically. And there were many people who wanted to do the same. And they were asking me to help them and I had no idea how to help them. And so over time, I'm like, you know what? I see, what it, I see my value. I see the need. 
and I'm going to develop a professional identity and a business model around it. And so I gave myself the title executive mentor and I developed a workshop called What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up, which I deliver many, many times. It's why you and I are met. That's how you heard about me. Um, and I deliver it to groups of CEOs, but also to people who are not in business, to school groups, to parent groups, to children, the versions of this that apply to anybody. And then I developed a business model where people pay me money to mentor them. And I have a whole structure around it that made it sustainable for me financially. So I didn't have to go back to the corporate world and I could live full of vitality and authenticity and help others do the same. There must be some incredible moments in that role um, where you, like you talk about living authentically and that that's a, there's a gratification to that when you can be honest and say that I'm living authentically, but, but there must be moments where you, somebody gives you some feedback or you, you create uh, some, some program and you see it through and you see the effects that people are having, or you take somebody um, and, and you mentor them through a difficult part of their life uh, that, that you just, you, you must have not even known gratification like that existed in, in the corporate world, like compared to what you thought was gratification back then to what it truly is for you now. I think that's fair to put it that way. And I would say for all human beings, um, it's deeply gratifying to be of service to other people, to be useful to other people. And so that's what I've been able to do with this professional identity. And so I think for all of us, if you look for ways to be of service uh, and you look for opportunities um, to, to be useful, then that's going to be deeply meaningful. I will say this, one of the epiphanies I had, that, and it was a joy I didn't see coming, because I work with so many people now, uh, many of them are very impressive on paper. They are even intimidating because of the accomplishments and their titles. And so, uh, you know, you can get a little nervous sometimes talking to these people. What I found is 100% across the board, every single one of them is struggling with something. Everybody is struggling with something. They probably won't tell you because it's not usually something you do in polite society or if you're trying to project a powerful facade to reveal your insecurities or your, your, your mistakes. But in the space that I create when I'm working with people, because we're working on the real stuff of how do you grow personally and professionally, they tell me. And it freed me up. I realized I'm allowed also to be flawed. I'm allowed also to be suffering and struggling. It doesn't mean I'm weak. It doesn't mean I'm a loser. In fact, it just means I'm a human. And that, that epiphany was the biggest gift for me. And then now I'm allowed to show up for other people authentically. And I talk very openly about my obvious flaws that I'm working on. One of my major flaws, I have great difficulty asking for help when I need it. For whatever reason, the way I was raised as a guy from the South, I don't know what it was, it doesn't matter. When I'm struggling, I feel like I should be able to solve all my problems. I don't need your help, thank you very much. And it just weakens me. It just makes the problems linger. And then when I finally ask for help, the people ask for help from like, Why, what took you so long? I love you. I'm here for you. I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm ashamed. I'm just ashamed of being weak. And that was, that's one of my ongoing flaws that I try to work on. The reason I say it out loud is I want to like look at it again, be like, quit doing that, <laughs> et cetera. There's lots of them. So but that's probably the, for me, the biggest gift I received from it. And of course it's gratifying when I'm a part of resource for someone who's growing and they share with me the ways they've grown because of our work together. Yes, that's deeply meaningful too. The, the specific one I wanted to ask about because um, I read about it in, in some of the material you provided and I had to go and check it out. Um, was how you led the, the the blind runner through the Grand Canyon, the rim to rim to rim excursion. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, that's like that. Something like that seems to me like what somebody does when they've accomplished all their other goals. Like that is so esoteric. It's just so kind of unique and out there. That can you talk about how you got involved with it and what went into it? What what the difficulties that you you expected that you weren't expecting and what what went into something like that, an accomplishment like that. Yeah, and the background on it is that I have a good friend who went blind in midlife, and his name is Dan Berlin. And every presentation I give, if I can do it, I talk about him. He's, he's just he's my favorite person on this planet. He went blind in midlife. He went through despair and depression for a couple of years, as anybody would. And then he just decided to become a marathoner. He wasn't a runner before. He'd run like, like three miles or whatever. He just wasn't a runner before. And he's like, after he went blind, he decided to be a marathoner. And he knew that I'd done marathons since I was 13 years old. So he asked me to guide him in the New York City Marathon. And my first reaction to his request was self-doubt. And I said, dude, all the races I've ever done have been about me, like my ego, like winning my age group or whatever goal I set for myself, beating my fastest time. He said, I've never guided a blind person before. I'm probably going to screw it up. And he said, no, you won't. It's easy. Hold a tether and just tell me if there's a pothole. You'll talk the whole time. You're good at talking, Charles. You'll do fine. <laughs> And so, and so we did the New York City Marathon together. He did great. And I just, all of a sudden, he opened up, talk about gifts, by the way. He gave me this incredible gift of being allowed to use my own athletic ability to be of service to others. I didn't even know this existed. I didn't even thought about it. And all of a sudden, I started guiding him. I started guiding other disabled athletes in races and training. It's so cool. It's such a great way to use your athletic ability. And so we started doing races together. And it was after doing some marathons and a half Ironman where I was like, dude, you want to start doing really crazy stuff? I, I just, and the reason is he has this quote. He says, um, I focus on my ability rather than my disability. This is, this is the power. This was the move he made. The way he got out of that two years of depression and despair. And that was real, by the way. In that phase, he was telling me things like, you know, when you lose your eyesight, you lose your independence, right? My wife has to drive me everywhere. It sucks. I have to ask for help every day, multiple times. It sucks. And he's like, you know what else? I can't see my children's faces. That's just cruel. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what to say to you. Of course. I mean, so of course you go into despair. Of course you go into depression. And then he's like, but, but, you know, I could run a marathon. This sudden move of focusing on his ability rather than his disability, that opened up a whole space of growth and opportunity that wasn't there when he was captured by the sadness and that's and when i'm like dude with this attitude we can do anything and i said you want to just start like we can keep doing races but let's do crazier stuff and i had run rim to rim to rim before with some other ultra runners purely for bragging rights it's not even a race you're not allowed to race there it's just it's just a route across the grand canyon and the rangers don't like people who do it because every so often <laughs> they need to be rescued and they're they're like you're an idiot for trying this it's really hard and they lecture you and i'm like well sorry but Dan was, he was all in. He's like, sure, I'll try it. And as we researched it, we couldn't find another documented account of a blind person having done it before. So we're like, I think he's gonna be the first. So we issued a, a media alert and the press liked it. We were on CBS Evening News, we were in Fox News or Outside Magazine. Like the press actually really liked the story. And, and it was very hard. It took us 28 hours, which is way longer than it had taken me to run it, more than twice as long as it when I ran it. But because he's blind, it's really dangerous. <laughs> so you have to go really carefully, man. And I, told, I know his wife well. I said, I swear to you, your husband's coming back. He'll be stinky and tired, but he'll come back alive. I promise you. And, that's, and then that just led us. We created a whole nonprofit 
where we take on crazy endurance challenges, things often never done before by a person who's blind, and then we raise money and we give it away in scholarship form to college students with vision impairment. And Dan mentors them every month. He's doing it to, you know, to this day is what we do. And um, it's really meaningful. He turned a tragedy into something deeply meaningful. He's, he's having a greater positive impact on this world than he ever would have had he not lost his eyesight. But that was up to him. He could have fallen into despair and felt sorry for himself, but he focused on his ability rather than his disability. Anybody listen to this story, I challenge them to think about their perceived limits. Whatever crap you've gone through in life, whatever unfairness has happened, whatever way you've been victimized, I know it sucks, I got it, but listen to this guy's story and then decide how you want to go through this world. It's a, it's a message and lesson for all of us. That's incredible, uh, first of all. <laughs> and, 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 and all the credit to him, for sure. But I mean, there has to be a, a reasonable amount of pride that you feel to just be a, even if it's just a footnote in the story. Yeah, well, he gave me that gift to be his guide. He trusted me. I told him, I tried one time, I said, I put a blindfold on, had a friend of mine try to guide me. And I, I, would, I was holding my hands out. Like, I'm, I'm not gonna trust you. You're gonna run my forehead into a tree branch. And so I just, I cannot, I'm like, dude, I don't know how you do this, how you put so much trust in me. Cause I, I don't think I could do it. So now he's a role model for me in so many ways. Um, and of course I feel pride and it's, it's just, it's a way it's, this is, I mentioned first adulthood, second adulthood. It's kind of like in your first adulthood, you want, you're trying to prove yourself. And you're trying to like develop a professional identity and in my case like an athletic identity and accomplishments and so it's kind of like it's externally defined and i think the second adulthood which is characterized by this midlife transition the recognition of the brevity of life you are going to die and you really try to live this like if you really live that you become more authentic the second adulthood is characterized much more by being of service to others and being authentic and dan handed it to me he literally handed that right to me and let me change my athleticism from self-centered to other oriented. And it is incredible, the difference, but I don't think I would have figured it out yet. I don't know if I ever would have figured it out. He, so he gave me as much a gift as I gave him. I'll tell you that. That's uh, yeah, that's an, an incredible way to look at it. I mean, that's, you know, there's some, there's some depth and perception to, to your point of view on all of that as well. Um, what, so through all of this, you've had some incredible experiences, but we're not going to sit here and pretend that it's it's always sunny everywhere. Uh, Charles goes. What what do you do on the days when when you're looking back on things, when things aren't working out, when you just can't have, see the the glass half full side of it? What are you, some of the tips and tricks you have for for your own mental health and how you manage that? Yeah, um, I go through it and many people I work with go through it. Let, let's, let me give you, I'll be specific. Like whenever I'm captured by anxiety about a future scenario, I don't want to happen. But then that happens from time to time. Just, you know, we're just anxious. Human beings can be anxious about <laughs> negative future scenarios. It's, it, I think it, our brains, our brains have a negativity bias. We're designed to go negative. We're designed to look for, you know, what, might, what bad thing might happen. I think it's a survival skill but it can really work against us. Um, and so it, I think it's a lot harder to stay positive and it's more natural to go negative. So my first point uh, kind of in answering your question is to give myself a break. I give myself permission to be a human being whose brain has a negativity bias. So rather than beat myself up and feel badly about what's wrong with me because I'm glasses half empty, negative person, it just is what our brains do. And I, and I think it's a survival technique um, that we, it's probably evolutionary. Doesn't matter, but that's the way our brains are. When I'm captured by my negativity bias, what I try to do is be analytical about it. 
Um, the first thing is if I'm really captured, like I'm truly like having a panic attack, which has happened to me before or overwhelmed by anxiety. So I'm, I'm really being debilitated by it. I use breathing techniques. So meditation is a really great um, skill I've worked on for a long time. So I use breathing techniques to, to turn off the amygdala. Specifically, I want the stress, like a, a cortisol and adrenaline to stop coursing through my body, please. This is all in my head. I'm not being chased by a lion. If I was chased by a lion, I want cortisol and adrenaline in my body. But in this case, I'm just anxious about something bad happening that I don't want to happen. So breathing techniques to calm me down. And then from the breathing techniques, that gives me the foundation to then analyze the situation. And here's the questions I ask. One, is there anything I can do right now to minimize the chances of this negative thing occurring? If the answer is yes, then I do it. Then do that thing. Like, what, what can you do right now? And then after I've finished whatever the, that thing is, I say, is there anything else I can do to anticipate? Maybe it's right out of mitigation strategy, right? Or call, you know, ask somebody else who's gone through this. Give me advice. Whatever. Read a book. But then once, you, once I've exhausted the different things that I can do to try to mitigate the likelihood of this negative thing happening, once the answer is, is there anything I can do? And the answer is no. Then I say, okay, I'm confident that if this negative thing happens, I'll figure out how to deal with it. So you do the work to have a mitigation strategy, and then you express confidence in yourself that you'll figure it out if that thing happens. And by the way, most of the time, whatever that thing I was anxious about doesn't happen, right? I've wasted, spent all this energy, but at least I got a good mitigation strategy out of it, right? right. But that's, that'd, be, that'd be one example of a, of a technique I use. Yeah, and you work the plan, right? Like you, you develop the plan, you work the plan, and that's a skill that that never goes out of style. So, of course. And uh, so, finally, and I like to talk to people who who you know had success in a couple of different um, couple of different avenues of their life. Uh, I like to get their perspective on you know what they thought success was going to look like for them earlier in their life. They got to a point where they they made the change, and and obviously at that point they had a vision of what success was going to be as a result of the change. And, and I like to understand, you know, where they, where they are on that journey and, and if success still looks like what they thought it was going to look like and, and what success looks like for them in any event. Sure. It's a wonderful question. When I was younger, I think I thought success was externally defined. Um, I think I was looking for someone else to tell me what success looked like. And I think I literally asked that question of a number of people when I was younger. I'm just like, what am I supposed to do to be successful? So I was waiting for someone else to tell me. Uh, I think that was that was my youthful approach to whatever success uh, means. Um, but now my attitude towards success is it's based in alignment. Where I see people suffer is when they're misaligned. And by that I mean, and I'm holding up my hands now, your left hand is your professional facade. This is the identity you take on that pays the bills. This is when people say, what do you do? This is your answer. So it's your professional identity and that I'm holding my left hand out. Your right hand is your authentic self. It's your unique self that you bring to this world. And this thing, by the way, I don't mean authentic in the fluffy sense of authentic. I mean, it as in a ton of hard work. You've done a ton of hard work to figure yourself out. You've suffered. And you've gathered this experiential knowledge that you only get on the far side of suffering. So this is this right hand is a ton of work. Who are you and who do you want to be? Those simple questions are extremely difficult to answer, actually, if you're if you're really sincere about it. So if you do a ton of hard work on your authentic self, 
your job is to align it with your professional facade. So the right hand match mirrors the left hand, the fingers overlap. This is where you're in full of vitality. Where I see people suffer is when they're misaligned. They're a kind, loving human being who wants to make the world a better place. That's their authentic self. And their job requires them to lie and manipulate in order to make money. I've worked with literally that person. They suffer. So I define success as alignment. Success is doing the hard work to figure out who you are and who you want to be and bringing that fully into alignment with the professional facade we all have to have in order to pay the bills. And when you get that alignment, it generates so much energy, so much vitality. People want to work for you. People want to be around you. People want to invest in you. It, it generates its own whole path that's really incredible. And that's actually the work I do day in and day out with people is to help them find that alignment. And that's what I do myself day in and day out is to try to live in a way in which I'm aligned. Carl Scott was an incredible conversation. I, I heard about him. My boss um, went to an executive training and, uh, course and, and Charles was, was the keynote speaker. And he came back and he just said, I, I got a guy for you. Uh, you got to look this guy up and, uh, and you got to reach out to him to see if you'd be willing to come on. And, and Charles was good enough to come on. And it was absolutely uh, mind blowing to sit down and go through all of, of what went into him deciding to walk away from being a C-suite executive at Intel to ride his bike across Japan with his eight-year-old son in tow or ride his bike around the circumference of Iceland with his six-year-old daughter in tow. You know, all these adventures that he's gone on and the things, the reasons behind it, none of them are haphazard or slapped together. He does everything with a purpose. And I think that that's the most incredible thing is when you can see what a little bit of planning and a little bit of determination can do and where you can end up when you uh, when you put your mind to it. I think that's what I took away from Charles Scott. Incredible podcast. We're uh, just crossed over the 100 threshold and, and we've got lots more coming. So please remember, like we always say, there are no wrong answers. There's no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music, Happy Rock. We would also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and give us any feedback you can. Thanks for listening.